According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn once again with me to Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 10. We'll uh, fix our bearings once again with Judas and his uh, the returning of the 30 pieces of silver. Episode 30, I believe this is our final episode, or our final class in this episode. We'll be moving on next week to the uh, trial before uh, Pilate. Uh, we have the first trial before Pontius Pilate, the trial before uh, Herod, and the second trial before Pontius Pilate. So the three upcoming trials will be uh, episodes 31, 32, 33. But for now, we're in episode 30, the suicide of Judas Iscariot. When Judas, who betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood." And they conferred together with, and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. All right, so this is where we are. We're dealing with the uh, prophecy of Jeremiah and the citation of Zechariah. And uh, we got a good start on this last week, and I think we'll be able to, uh, to wrap it up here this morning. Before we do begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that distractions are set aside, that we're humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together, for the opportunity, Father, to rightly divide the word of truth. I thank you that you have uh, designed the church age in such a way with a complete canon of scripture. I thank you for the privilege we have to be noble-minded, like the Bereans, to search the scriptures and see if these things are so. I pray, Father, that you would hedge us about, protect us, uh, hinder anyone that would want to come in here and bring us to harm, and uh, protect us, Father. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. So that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Really, what did Jeremiah say? And uh, this is actually a citation out of Zechariah, and we'll take a look at that here this morning. Where they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. So was this a high price? Was it a low price? Was it glorious? Was it insulting? What was this? It was actually insulting and uh, uh, not a high price, not a price of worthiness, a price of worship. It was a price of scorn. It was, a, it was an insulting price uh, in the rejection of their shepherd. And they gave them for the potter's Ford directed me. So what's going on with the potter? For those of you that are keeping notes in the outline, we are in main point five. The final point of study with A, B, and C. Even these machinations serve to glorify God via fulfillment of prophecy. 
via fulfillment of prophecy. So you got a whole bunch of unbelievers, and they're all cooperating together for all of their satanic reasons. And the Pharisees have their satanic reasons, and the Sadducees have their satanic reasons, and Judas Iscariot has his satanic reasons, and all of these satanic reasons, not one of them is godly. They're all satanic. And they're all coming together. And they're conspiring and they're plotting and they're doing this and they're doing that. And yet, when all is said and done, what's, being, what's happening? God the Father's plan and purpose is being achieved. God the Father's plan and purpose is being achieved. He's not the source of evil. He's not uh, causing it to happen. But he is sovereignly shepherding, sovereignly overseeing, sovereignly directing that which uh, these uh, unbelievers are uh, causing to happen. And so it's, uh, it's a fascinating thing to observe uh, the, the place where sovereignty and volition meet. <laughs> okay, Because our finite mind rebels. Our finite mind recoils. Our finite mind uh, grasps a portion of sovereignty. We grasp a portion of, of volition. And we struggle sometimes when they, when they meet to say, well, how do they meet? And how are they reconciled? And how are they blended? And how do they, how do they, um, how are they married, as it were? Okay, and it is a marriage in a lot of ways <laughs> when you think about it. So, um, different folks handle it in different ways, and some uh, there are branches of theology that deny that there is such thing as volition. They they throw everything into the sovereign, sovereignty category that God sovereignly forces every choice that everybody makes. Okay, and then there's other another side that basically diminishes sovereignty and says God's a slave. God has to, God has no power over. He's he's uh, subject to the choices that the creatures make. And both extremes are obviously not biblical. Both extremes are wrong. We understand that we maintain true sovereignty. We also maintain true volition and the accountability that God permits us to exercise. So. Let's uh, take a look at it. Now, in this, um, God in his sovereignty is allowing these evil things to take place, but they come together to serve his purpose, and they come together to fulfill what he promised would happen. So that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Now, Jeremiah is cited, but Zechariah is quoted. And uh, last week, I won't go back over this, but last week we did give two uh, ways in which this apparent contradiction can be reconciled. It's not a contradiction, or it's only a surface contradiction. Um, yes, we identify that it is Jeremiah the prophet that is cited, and yes, we identify that the verses quoted weren't Jeremiah's verses, they were Zechariah's verses from Zechariah chapter 11, and we're going to see. So how is that not a contradiction? How is that not a mistake in our Bible? How is that not... Uh, evidence that our Bible is wrong or has errors or we can't trust it or things of that nature. Well, there's several ways that this can be explained. The first way that you can explain the apparent contradiction is to say that Jeremiah stood at the head of the prophetic canon. And so Jeremiah serves as a label for everything that's found in the prophetic portion of the Old Testament. That Jeremiah stands, it's like when you give headings to the law, the prophets, and the writings, that they stand as headings for that portion of the Bible. Uh, at one point, uh, Jesus even mentioned the law and the Psalms. 
Okay, and what he meant was that you had the, the different headings that applied to that portion of the Bible, because that's all about what there was at that point of time, right? They didn't have a New Testament yet. The whole Bible is what we call the the Old Testament now, but that was the entirety of the Bible, and it was called the Law and the Prophets, or the Law and the Writings, or the Law and the Prophets and the Writings, as we understand it. So it is argued by many that Jeremiah stood at the head of the prophetic canon. And so uh, you don't have to say Zechariah or Malachi or, or Obadiah. If you just say in the book of Jeremiah, you've got it covered. It's the prophetic portion of the Old Testament. And there's uh, Lightfoot makes a very strong case related to that. It also is argued that when there is a synthesis of prophets being cited, the most prominent of the prophets is named. And that although we have only one explicit quotation in these verses, we actually have concepts that are being brought together as a synthesis. And so, uh, for example, in Mark chapter 1, where both Malachi and Isaiah are quoted, um, Mark doesn't say, you know, as, as uh, was quoted in Isaiah and Malachi, he just cites Malachi. Uh, I'm sorry, he just cites Isaiah. said that wrong. In Mark 1, verses 2 and 3, we had that example. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And he only lists the, the major prophet. He doesn't list both of them. He only lists the major prophet. So that's another explanation. And either one of these explanations is sufficient, is acceptable to, uh, to relax in our thinking about uh, the uh, presence of the name Jeremiah in uh, Matthew 27, 9. We're not, uh, we're not worked up in a dither over it because of either of these explanations, or both of them combined, actually serve to uh, explain the, the uh, matter quite well. Now, secondly, when we talk about these themes, I'm not going to go back and reteach Jeremiah 18 and Jeremiah 19 this morning, but I would encourage you to, uh, uh, to review last week's class, to review those chapters, to review those messages. Because Jeremiah spoke and wrote about a potter and his smashed vessel. He spoke and he wrote about a potter and his smashed vessel. And the doctrine that is contained in those chapters, the, uh, the message that the Lord had for Israel in those two chapters is important to understand in its connection to the first advent of Jesus Christ. In other words, it was not limited to Jeremiah's day. That the warnings that were given when Jeremiah spoke those uh, messages in chapter 18 and chapter 19 were not limited to Jeremiah's day. It's not simply a, a rebuke about, uh, you know, look out, you guys are really bad, and the Babylonians are coming, and I'm going to destroy Jerusalem, and, uh, and you're going to go away into captivity. All right? If that was all those messages were about, then why are they in the Bible? <laughs> Why are they recorded for our edification? It's got to be more than that. All right? Because all scriptures, God breathed them profitable for teaching, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. We have application. We're going to learn from those messages. And we find very quickly that it's more than just simply the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem that's in view. And so, the imagery of the potter with a spoiled lump and a remade vessel. What is being spoken of there? There's a lump, and it's being fashioned, a lump of clay, and the potter is fashioning that lump of clay. And then the lump goes bad. And the potter says, well, I can't work with it at this point anymore. 
I have to restart over. I have to reshape this lump. Okay? And that imagery of a potter with a spoiled lump and a remade vessel, it speaks to the remaking of Israel. And it's not only applicable in Jeremiah's day, it's applicable in our day. We understand that Israel has a future. And that presently their stewardship is on hold. Presently the stewardship has been vested in the church. That we are the ones who have been entrusted with the oracles of God. In fact, we have scriptures that Israel has never been entrusted with. Not yet. Okay? Remember what we looked at in Romans 3. What advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay? And the first canon of scripture there ever was was a Hebrew canon of scripture. And Israel was entrusted with that canon of Scripture. Well, now there's a new stewardship. You and I in the church, the body of Christ. And now there's a new canon in the sense that the first canon has now had been added to it with the Greek Scriptures of the New Testament. Now we have a canon that is both Hebrew and Greek. All right. Different things that we'll be looking at coming up in canonicity in uh, Geisler's textbook. But we have now a canon that includes the canon that Israel operated with and more, right? Because we add the New Testament to the Old Testament. Now, we have a canon as the stewards that Israel never had. We have a table we can partake of that Israel had no right to eat of, okay? We have the, the, the greater advantage of our stewardship, but don't begin to think for a moment that that means that he's done with them because he's not. They, uh, they're still a lump in his hands, okay? According to this prophetic passage in, Jer- in Jeremiah chapter 18, they're still a lump in the potter's hands. And the potter is reshaping them and reshaping them, and when he gives them their second shape, that's going to be the permanent shape. That's going to be the final result, the second advent of Jesus Christ, as he's once again working within, with that lump that is Israel. So, the imagery of the potter with a spoiled lump and a remade vessel speaks to the remaking of Israel, not her replacement. Not her replacement. See, nothing happens to the clay. The fundamental ingredient is still the same. The material substance is still the same. Uh, the idea, if, if this imagery was supposed to speak of Israel's failure and the church's replacement, then this imagery has a problem. This imagery would then need to inject something into that clay. Because the church is both Jew and Gentile. Let me rephrase that. The church is neither Jew nor Gentile. Let me rephrase that. Alright? The church is a heavenly people. A heavenly people. And in the metaphors of the Old Testament, Jacob's got, or Abraham has both earthly descendants and heavenly descendants. The earthly descendants are shaped out of the dust of the earth. The heavenly descendants are the metaphors of the stars of heaven. All right. But nothing, this lump stays a lump of clay. The material substance is unchanged. And what this, what this pot becomes ultimately is what the pot was supposed to be at first. The potter didn't change his design. The potter didn't decide, oh well, I, you know, I was, I was making a pot, now I guess I'll make a lamp, or now I guess I'll make a, no, he's still making a pot. He doesn't change either the material substance or the intended design. The end is still the same end he's always had in mind. It just it didn't come into shape the first time. That's why he had to remold it, restart it, and get it to the shape he intended all along. 
the shape he intended all along. Okay? So let me ask you, when John the Baptist was ministering in the first advent, prior to the first advent of Jesus Christ, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was that a real offer? Was he a liar? Was he true? Was the kingdom of heaven at hand? Was the king about to be born? Yes. They rejected That's right. They rejected their king. They rejected the kingdom. So, but let me ask you, does that, does that, didn't the human rejection and sin, does that thwart God's plan? Is he forced to now come up with a plan B? And, and the, the, the kingdom that's coming is delayed, all right, but even though it's delayed, does that mean it's a different kingdom? Or is it the same kingdom? It's the same kingdom of what it would have been had they accepted it. Okay? It's even the same kingdom of what it would have been. You know, is that the first and only time they were ever offered the kingdom? It's kind of interesting. What were they offered when Joshua led them into the land? What were they offered? And then what did they have a potential to receive? Until they got all stupid and said, oh, we want to have a king like the Gentiles around us. When they were in the land under uh, prophets and priests without a king, okay, and, and God raised up different judges at different times, they were God's people then, were they not? I think this kingdom offer has been made on a number of occasions to Israel, not just in, uh, with, with uh, John the Baptist. But the point being, it's the same kingdom they've been offered every time. And when they finally get the kingdom, when the kingdom is finally offered and received in faith, Second Advent, it's not a different kingdom than what they've been offered before. It's the same kingdom. In other words, the shape of this pot is what the Father has always designed for Israel. That millennial kingdom with Christ on the throne is what the Father has always designed. Always had that in his design. So this becomes important. And it's, it's good. It's good to be reminded of that. And when the, the Pharisee and when the, when the, the high priests here and the, the temple uh, officials, when they take the 30 pieces of silver and they purchase a potter's field, it is just testimony to how glorious God's plan is. That they're serving Satan, and in serving Satan, they're actually fulfilling what God promised is going to happen. And more, they don't even have a, they don't have capacity to understand that the um, the uh, the doctrine contained within the Potter messages of Jeremiah 18 and Jeremiah 19 are are are, are built into the realities of what's happening here, as well as the uh, rejected shepherd of Zechariah 11. We'll look at that here next. All right, so the imagery of the Potter with a spoiled lamp that is Jeremiah 18. Secondly. The death of the innocents. The death of the innocents in Jeremiah 19. This also has fulfillment. Why did they buy that potter's field? Why did they buy Topheth? Why did they buy Ben-Hinnom? Why did they buy Gehenna? Different names for the same place. Why did they purchase Hakodama? And why is it Hakodama? Why is it called Hakodama? We spent a lot of time on this last week as well. The death of the innocents, Jeremiah 19. This is where he commands Jeremiah to take the pot and smash it. The death of the innocents is abhorrent to the Father. 
who must sacrifice his innocent son. Why is child sacrifice so horrendous? You say, oh, pastor, how can you ask that question? Child sacrifice is horrendous because, because, um, you know, because it's, it just is. It's just, it's, it's not human. Babies are innocent. Babies are special. Babies are beautiful. All right? And we've got moms here tonight, this morning and grandmas here this morning and, and, okay, and men too. All right? We're, we're not totally heartless. Um, so at the risk of, 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 okay, this could be dangerous, so work with me on this. At the risk of, of you thinking how cold and heartless I am, let me just ask a deeper question. Because I don't deny any of that. Why, why, why is child sacrifice abhorrent? Child sacrifice is, is unthinkable. It's, 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 abomin- it's abominable. It's, it's, it's not human. I agree, it's not human. But take all of those reasons and put them on a shelf for the moment and quit thinking about those. Okay. Quit thinking about why something is unacceptable on a human basis. Right? Because, I mean, if we limit what we find to be acceptable or unacceptable, right and wrong, moral and immoral, if we limit, if our whole center of that is all human, then then we're no different than the unbeliever. And we we ought to just start marching some human rights crusades and and, and joining in human rights protests and and stuff. And what is a human right, anyway? (laughs) Okay? Let's... Yeah, let's, let's put our humanity on a shelf for the moment and let's ask a deeper question. Why is child sacrifice so abhorrent? Okay, why is murder abhorrent? Why is murder wrong? Not just on a human level. Yeah, it's, it's an attack on the image of God. Yeah, life is a gift from God. And so humanity, greater than the angels, greater than the plants, greater than the angels even, Humanity is the realm of creation that images God. Because God the Son is the God-man. He's not the God-angel. He's not the God-tree. He's not the God-whale. Not the God-dolphin. He's the God-man. Alright? It's humanity that bears the image of God. And so murder is wrong, not for human rights reasons. Child sacrifice is wrong, not for human rights reasons. From the father's perspective now, for the, who gave the ultimate gift in the, in the death of his son, it's the ultimate gift imaginable. And child sacrifice makes a mockery of that. Abortion makes a mockery of that. The murder of the innocents, as if, well, who cares? Okay. The idea, remember, it's the death of the innocent that allows us to be made righteous. Okay. The guilty can be made righteous because the innocent took our place. So, it's not a human tragedy when a young person dies. It's not a it's not a human rights issue when a child is sacrificed. And yes, it's all demonic, it's all wicked, it's all horrendous, but more for more than human reasons. That's what I'm trying to say. For more than human reasons. I'm not denying the human reasons. I'm just trying to see you I'm just trying to help you see more than that. And I hope that none of us just limit our morality to, to human reasons for anything. 
All right. The death of the innocent. So we get into Jeremiah 19 and we see they bought the potter's field. They bought Hakodama. And it was Hakodama long before, long before Judas's guts um, spilled forth. All right. And this is beautiful. This is not a, it's not a contradiction. It's an illustration. And I love it. I love how Matthew 27 says, for this reason, right? Uh, verse 8, for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And what's the reason according to Matthew? Well, the reason is because it was purchased with blood money. So it was purchased with blood money by the, by the priests. For this reason, it's called Hakodama, the field of blood. Okay? Well, in the book of Acts, we have a different reason. In the book of Acts, we have a different reason. Why is it called Hakodama in the book of Acts? Because he falling headlong, he burst asunder, and his uh, his innards became outards, right? His uh, yeah. This man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakodama, that is, field of blood. So there's another reason. But the, those aren't the only two. We have the reason in Matthew 27, the reason in Acts chapter 1. We got the reason in uh, Jeremiah 19. In Jeremiah 19, what was going on in, uh, in this place 600 years ago? 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Jeremiah 19, verses 4 through 13. Because they have forsaken me. Now notice, i got to back up. Verse 2, or even verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Go and buy a potter's earthenware jar and take some of the elders of the people, some of the senior priests. Why them? They're the ones that are paying the blood money in Judas's day. They're the ones that are, yeah. They're the ones buying the field for a burial place for strangers in, in Judas's day, yeah. Then go out to the valley of Ben Hinnom. What's that? Hakodama, field of blood. Okay. It's got all these different names. Sometimes it's called Topheth. Sometimes it's called Gehenna. Go out to the valley of Ben Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the Potsherd Gate, and proclaim Potsherd Gate. Why there? There you go. That's where the potters would dump their trash. Then when a pot goes bad, when a pot got smashed, where does it get dumped? Ben Hinnom was the, was the trash heap. And uh, as the trash would pile up higher and higher, they'd have to burn it. And they would burn their trash, and it would be a nasty, nasty smell and a nasty, nasty place. A place of vile filth, a place of burning, a place uh, you don't want to look upon. It also became a center of demon worship. All right. Behold, I'm about to bring calamity on this place in which the ears of everyone that hears it will tingle. Verse 4, Because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. Why is this place called Hakodama? 
Lots of reasons. That's right. The Matthew reason, the Acts reason, the Jeremiah 19 reason. This is a place of blood. And it is, a, it is an abhorrent place to the Lord. And they built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal. A, pl- a thing to which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. All right. So, um, different things that happen here. Verses 10 through 13, likewise, addresses this under the name of Topheth. But uh, we'll let that go. If um, you need a, a geographical picture, I promised I would bring this up and uh, we can do that. Places, things, and events. I'm still learning how to use some of the new features in the fifth release. But the Valley of Hinnom valley in Jerusalem that begins at the Jaffa Gate and curves southeast to the Kidron Valley. And, uh, well, we can really zoom in, can't we? So, um, we're familiar with the Kidron Valley, right? That's the one to the east of Jerusalem. That's the one where he crossed the Kidron and went to the Mount of Olives, or he crossed the Kidron and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? This is Old Testament Jerusalem. We can look at modern Jerusalem or... The times of Ezra and Jeremiah, New Testament. Let's, let's do New Testament Jerusalem. This is where Jesus and Judas would have been. Anyway, here's your temple area here. And then the, uh, the Kidron Valley is the one that is in the east. But then now to the south, to the west and to the south, is this Hinnom Valley right here that comes around this way. And it actually leads into the Kidron Valley. It actually reaches the, the valley. One valley leads into the other valley in the, at this corner, okay, at this lower corner. And this is where all of the ugliness took place. This is where all of the demon worship took place. This is where the altars to Baal were set up. This is where the, the this is the, the Potsherd Gate, called the Essene Gate in uh, in uh, Jesus' day. Different different names for it. But this is where they would dump their trash. This is where the potters would throw out their broken potsherds. Okay. And uh, and this is where they would burn the trash, a nasty burning smell. And this is where they would uh, burn their children when they uh, were engaged in that kind of activity. So that's the region right there. And what is kind of interesting, you can find this place today in modern-day Jerusalem. You ever go to Google Maps? You ever go to Google Maps and put in Hakodama? There's modern Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, I mean, okay, the buildings are different. But the, uh, and now the Muslims have put a mosque on it. Uh, but the, the hills are still there. The valleys are still there. And uh, we'll see if this loads. There we go. There's the Muslim dome. Here's the valley. And uh, you can do Hakodama. <laughs> and uh, it plots the little thing right here. And in Hebrew, it's kind of small. 
min, I can't read that first word, minzer, minazer, hakal, dama. And today, there is a, uh, a monastery that sits on top of it. And there's even a road that comes down this valley that reaches this road, which runs up that valley. Okay, And you know what this road here is called that comes down this valley? It's called the Hakaldama Road. Okay. And uh, even drop a little street view guy on there. This is the valley of Hakaldama. This is the road that goes down the hill that goes down that valley of Hakaldama. And that is the monastery that sits on that hill. And that's the guard checkpoint that keeps you from going up there. <laughs> the uh, monastery is not all that old, but it's um, it is interesting. It's still there. It still has that name. Okay. Anyway, lots of fun. Jeremiah has a lot to say about the rejection of the Messiah, about Israel's national discipline, and it's far more than just a Babylonian fulfillment. Far more than just a Babylonian fulfillment. It's looking forward to first advent, it's looking forward to second advent, it's looking forward to this lump that gets reshaped into what its final product is going to be. All right. There's a lot more to it. Also, uh, even this valley of Ben-Hinnom, um, when the Greeks, when, when Ben-Hinnom was brought into the Greek language, they, uh, they, they called it gay, or for land or earth, Gay-Hinnom. And Gay-Hinnom became Gehenna. And Gehenna was adapted as a, as a title for hell. Because they looked at this burning valley and the, and the burning and the smell and the nastiness and the ugliness and they said, that is just a Gehenna. And by the time of the New Testament, Gehenna was an expression for Hades. Hades. The New Testament authors started using Gehenna instead of Hades for uh, a term of hell. All right, let's get now to Zechariah. Zechariah spoke and wrote about a rejected shepherd. So, we don't totally ignore Jeremiah in the Matthew 27 application. We also recognize that the literal quote did come from Zechariah 11. Zechariah spoke and wrote about a rejected shepherd. A rejected shepherd. And before we look at the content here, we, we understand that this is for our benefit. This is a blessing. That the links between Zechariah and Jeremiah are important. The fact that we have Zechariah that connects, because of the, the Potter references and the, and the connection between Jeremiah's prophecies and Zechariah's prophecies, um, the links between Zechariah and Jeremiah are important because Zechariah follows the Babylonian cap the destruction of Jerusalem. All right? And this then helps us to expand our focus where we realize it's not all wrapped up in the Babylonian captivity. Zechariah follows the Babylonian captivity. So he can't be looking forward to that. Right? And I, and I challenged you last week 
if you're in a prophetic portion of Scripture and it's talking about Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, ask yourself, which one, which time? Is this the Babylonian destruction? Is this the Roman destruction? Or is it the Antichrist end times Roman destruction? All right. Or if you're talking about the regathering of the Jews, ask yourself, which time? Is it the Ezra and Nehemiah regathering from the Babylonian captivity? Or is it the eschatological regathering from the four corners of the earth? Is it the millennial regathering, in other words? And uh, oftentimes these prophecies are actually dual. There are, there are multiple applications. They're, they're seeing immediate and long-term fulfillments. So the links between Zechariah and Jeremiah are important because Zechariah follows the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and looks forward to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. And Zechariah helps us because it's post-Babylon, but it's pre-Rome. That's why Zechariah is so valuable. When Jesus is speaking about Jerusalem being destroyed, well, that's first century. But is he talking about Titus in 70 AD or is he talking eschatologically about Antichrist in the tribulation? Okay, or both. When the Apostle John is writing in the book of Revelation, and he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and being surrounded by armies and, and, uh, and so forth, well, that's got to be eschatological because it's after 70 AD. 96 AD, that temple, that first century temple is already gone. Okay, so we have a chain from Jeremiah to, and we can include Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah there, but then we have the post exilic prophets. Zechariah being the dominant one, Haggai, Malachi as well. But then you have Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. That's post-captivity. But it's pre-Titus, pre-70 A.D. Then you have the book of Revelation in 96 A.D. After Titus's destruction of Jerusalem. And you have all of those different time periods and you put them together to have a complete eschatology for the coming tribulation and millennial reign of Jesus Christ. All right. Zechariah portrays Jesus in his first advent as the good shepherd. Let's look at this. Zechariah 11 and uh, verses uh, 4 through 14. We have a bit of a song here in 1 through 3. It, you can tell us not good news. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Wail, O Cypress, for the cedar has fallen because of the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. Okay. So cedars and oaks. and Not a good, not a good day to be a tree. <laughs> All right. And not a good day to be a shepherd. Verse 3. There is a sound of a shepherd's wail, for the glory is ruined. There is the sound of a young lion's roar, for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. Okay. So that's not a happy song. Right? Verse 4. Thus says the Lord my God. Pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. So here's a command. Here's, a, here's a, an order to shepherd. Pasture, shepherd, okay? Tend the flock. Thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. So this is a work assignment that Zechariah is going to have. He's going to have to shepherd a flock. And it's a flock that's doomed. You say, well, why bother? What's the point? I'm not going to waste my time. They're a doomed flock anyway. Who cares? 
You mean I've got to look out for lions and bears and I've got to put my neck at risk? Why bother? They're a doomed flock anyway. I'm going to stretch my neck out for a flock that's not going to appreciate it? Yep. Pastor the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sells them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. Hallelujah, brother. They've got an external form of religion, but they equate financial success with godliness. And as long as they're financially prospering, well, then that must mean God's shining upon us with his favor. Right? Yeah, we're making money. God must be blessing us. Well, you're doing it at the expense of the sheep, though. And you're, uh, you're getting rich and to their detriment, to their harm. And their own shepherds have no pity on them, for I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land. This is the explanation for why he wants Zechariah to engage in a useless exercise. He says, you're going to paint a picture of what I'm doing. Okay, It's just like why Hosea had to marry the harlot. The Lord said, you're going to paint a picture of what I'm doing. So Zechariah's got to shepherd this flock that's doomed to slaughter. And he's going, to be, he's going to be a portrayal of the first advent of Jesus Christ is what he's really going to be here. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I will cause the men to fall, each into another's power and into the power of his king. And that's kind of fascinating right there, too. Fruchtenbaum does some good stuff. Arnold Fruchtenbaum does some good stuff with that in verse 6. Cause the men to fall, each into another's power, and into the power of his king, and they will strike the land, and I will not deliver them from their power. And so falling into one another's power is the idea that the Jewish people are going to become totally enslaved to their fellow Jews. They're going to become totally enslaved, religiously enslaved to uh, the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they're going to be, their whole lives are going to be dictated by these religious uh, uh, control freaks. You know, how much can they carry? How much? How far can they walk? Uh, what are they allowed to do and not do? What can they eat and not eat? And all of the, uh, the slavery that they're under to their own people. But then they're also under the power of his king. Under the power of his king. And he gives them into the hand of the Romans because, remember, they so uh, brazenly defied the Lord and said, We have no king but Caesar. <laughs> okay, you, do you now? You have no king but Caesar. And the prophet Zechariah said, I'm going to deliver you into the hand of your king. And they become cannibals through the process. Oh, an ugly, ugly process of the destruction of Jerusalem and the, the siege they endured for those years and the, the absolute inhumanity that the end was unthinkable. Read Josephus sometime in the, the nasty things that they endured or didn't endure as they were destroyed so i will have no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land uh, but behold i will cause them uh, the men to fall each into another's power into the power of his king and they will strike the land and i will not deliver them from their power i will strike the land and will not deliver them from their power so verse seven what does zechariah do it says yes sir and he does it he goes forth and he pastures. He says, So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, and hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, and the one I called favor, that's grace, and the other I called union, 
So I pastured the flock. Then, here's something else, verse 8. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Now this is fascinating too, because he, uh, Zechariah is trying to be the faithful shepherd, and he's, he realizes that there's three others that are already there. And who are they? Well, they've got to be annihilated. And uh, different thoughts here related to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the religious leaders, um, the elders of the people that had shepherding responsibilities. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. What is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. And that's what they did in 70 A.D. Okay? I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces. How much more grace is there going to be? To break my covenant, which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the flock. Now, can it be eternally broken? No, thank you. Okay. So it was uh, broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. So, when he pantomimes the whole thing, in his day, in Zechariah's day, there was actually a, a, a remnant that learned from it, but not many. Okay? And so I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. Alright, so, in the Zechariah passage, that's quoted in Matthew, in the Zechariah passage that's fulfilled, we don't have a traitor in view. We don't have a traitor who's betraying somebody else and who's receiving blood money for it. The one getting paid is the faithful shepherd. The one getting paid is the, is the one faithful shepherd that actually loved the flock that was about to be destroyed. And uh, he says, pay me if it's good in your sight. And if not, never mind. <laughs> okay? So how do they value him? This is the point. How do they value him? And that magnificent price that I was valued. Okay? That magnificent price at which I was valued. Now I'm looking here and do I see that magnificent price at which I was valued? I don't see the word magnificent. I don't see price. I don't see valued. I don't see... See, we realize that the Matthew citation is not a verbatim quote. It's a concept. Okay? It's a concept. So, if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my... Oh, there's magnificent price. Verse 13. There we go. So they weighed out 30 pieces of... of uh, 30 shekels of silver as my wages. They weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Now, this is an insulting price. Okay? And it's far worse. I don't know if you're ever a waiter. I was a, a waitress. I was a waiter for three years. And, and far worse than getting zero for a tip is getting two cents, ten cents, a quarter, right? Because there you know that they didn't just forget. See, if you get zero, then it could be in the back of your mind that, oh, they just forgot. They meant to, they just forgot. Or whatever. But if they leave you two cents, okay, or they leave you a nickel, then you know they didn't forget. 
They are deliberately displeased. They are not happy. And they want you to know that you are uh, scum. They don't like you. They're not going to have you again. Okay? That's an insulting wage. 30, pieces of, uh, 30 shekels of silver is an insulting wage. In fact, it's a worthless price. And we'll see that here shortly. It comes out of uh, Exodus 21. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That magnificent price in which I was valued by them. Throw it to the potter. That magnificent price in which I was valued by them. So there you go. This, this magnificent price. This glorious insult. That's what they think of me? All right then. Throw it to the potter. Now why the potter? Well... Because this rejection of the shepherd has to be connected together with Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah 19, the reshaping of the pot and the, uh, the full doctrine of what we've just been looking at in these other passages. So I threw the 30 shekels of silver. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and I threw them. And, and this is so fascinating because this is what Judas did, right? He tried to return the money. They wouldn't take it. So he throws it. Say, well, somebody's got to pick him up now. I'm out of here. And he goes and he hangs himself. <laughs> okay. So here's Zechariah now throwing the 30 shekels of silver to the potter in the house of the Lord. There was actually a potter in there. And they used a lot of pots. They used a lot of vessels. And uh, then I cut in pieces my second staff, union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel and more things that go on after this. The Lord said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. And uh, he's got another message to deliver in verses 15 through 17. All right. So Zechariah portrays Jesus in his first advent as the good shepherd. And, and we have this. Jesus claims to be the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And I don't think anyone really disputes this. Verse 11, verse 14. John 10:11 I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches and snatches them and scatters them he flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep see and this is the the um, contrast there with with Zechariah being the faithful shepherd the good shepherd uh, even though the, the sheep were doomed to slaughter, he still tended them, he still nurtured them, he still fed them, he pastured them, uh, leading them into a pasture for food and water. Um, and then he had to destroy those other shepherds. He destroyed those other three. All right, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep, which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. When does that take place? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. No, no, and no. Okay. It is interesting. We do have... Um, 
We do have, <coughs> have Jew and Gentile, one body in Christ, and we are called a flock when it comes to uh, the church age. Uh, elders are commanded to shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Okay. Um, but they are not of this fold. What is this fold? Okay. Yeah, Israel, the Jewish fold. But there are other sheep, Gentile sheep, of other folds. Anyway, um, most people assume this is a church fulfillment. I think it's bigger than that. And we've got uh, applications of what's going to come up in, uh, remember, the summing up of all things in Christ is the fullness of time. Okay, And as uh, things in heaven, things on the earth. All right, different aspects there. Thirdly, 30 pieces of silver was the price of contempt. 30 pieces of silver was the price of contempt. It was the value of a dead slave in Exodus 21:32. The value of a dead slave in Exodus 31 21:32. The value of contempt. Thirty pieces of silver was the price of contempt, the value of a dead slave, Exodus 21:32. Now there's uh, different things that happen here in this chapter, different injuries that can take place. This was one we had a conversation in about a month ago related to unborn children. That uh, if there is an injury to a pregnant woman, uh, in fact, if the baby inside her dies, then that's a death. And it's death for death, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And um, different aspects there. Any further injury shall appoint a penalty, life for life. And that uh, baby in the womb is alive. And it's quite remarkable that uh, some folks try to turn that passage around as if it was saying the exact opposite of what it's really saying. As if... Uh, well, you know, the baby died, you pay a little penalty, whatever the, whatever the husband shall decide or whatever the judges decide. But it's not the same as if it was a real life. Okay? And they read that verse with a direct opposite view of what that verse really says. The verse says it is a life. Anyway, further down in the chapter, uh, you better keep control of your slaves. You better keep control of your animals. And um, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he should let him go free on account of his eye. If he knocks out a tooth, uh, let him go free on account of his tooth. We're not to be physically abusive to the slaves. Uh, if an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. His flesh shall not be eaten. The owner of the ox shall go unpunished. Um, but if he was previously in the habit of goring and his owner had been warned, well, now it's negligence. Now it's willful negligence. And uh, the ox shall be stoned, its owner shall also be put to death. Whether it gores a son or a daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same rule. That's verse 31. Verse 32, if the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. If a man opens a pit or digs a pit, does not cover it, now you've, again, negligence. If harm comes through negligence, you left an open pit there and a donkey falls into it. 
other things that happen here. All right. The price of a dead slave. Is that all I'm really worth? Really? This is what the Lord's saying when uh, Zechariah is portraying the faithful shepherd. Aha. I knew I did this. I forgot I made that slide. The slide was supposed to take you to here. And I went here anyway, even without the slide. So... In any event, uh, good to understand the geography, good to understand the uh, some of the pictures. I've never been to Israel. People say, oh, you have to go, you have to go. I say, why? I can go on Google Maps and see a street view. You know what? I don't have to go there and take that picture. I'm there. I'm looking at that picture. And think of the airfare I saved and the jet lag. And, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Google Earth, uh, I'm a cheapskate is what I really am. And so I, uh, I, can, I can tour the world and do it for, in my pajamas. All right, we will come back next week and um, pick up with episode 31, 32, 33. We'll move on to the next round of trials, the trials before Pilate, Herod, and Pilate. Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, we thank you for all that you have provided. And, and we're humbled, Father. It's, it's stunning what is available to us in our generation. The technology we have for global communication, for uh, just being able to see various things and various maps. And it's, it's frightening in some ways, Father, but it's also encouraging to know that we are so close, so close to uh, the Lord coming for us and taking us home. Father, we just uh, thank you for the provision. We thank you for the uh, resources. And we ask, Father, in humility that we would be uh, redeeming these resources effectively. Uh, to, to whom much is given shall much be required. And, Father, we've got, we've got resources available uh, beyond anything any previous generation of Bible teacher ever had. And we know we're accountable, Father, if we fail to teach effectively when we've been given so much. So, Father, humble us, um, give us a sense of urgency and, and uh, a drive to be effective in the feeding of your flock. Father, we are shepherding a flock that's not doomed to slaughter. We're shepherding a flock that is promised a rescue from the wrath to come. So, Father, um, just bring each day as a, as a renewed blessing. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.